It is great to be with you. Um, just a joy to get the opportunity to share God's Word with you this morning. Um, we are in the middle of a series called uh, Vocabulary for Our Times. Uh, Pastor Keith has been taking us through the book of 1 Corinthians and um, typically, I think he started doing this last year, uh, the beginning of the year, he's felt the Lord lead him to to in, help envision us for um, the new year coming in. So last year he did a series called Enchanted. Uh, and this year uh, we're, we're picking up words, uh, picking up thoughts from Scripture um, as we look into 2019. Just some ideas that that we see in culture um, and we see in Scripture. And we're, we're, we're going to need Scripture's insight to, to walk through um, 2019 as, as some issues pop up. Uh, and so we've, we've heard some... Great feedback from you um, in terms of how helpful this series has been. Um, we got a couple more words for you. Um, today we're looking at the word of righteousness. And so let me ask that you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Keith asked me to preach. I, I thought there for a second, what, what, what word... What word is out there that just kind of merits attention? What concept is out there that is, is something um, that we need to be reminded of, be instructed in, uh, be corrected in? Um, and um, as I was praying, as this word righteousness came up. Uh, righteousness, righteousness. And, and um, uh, to tell you the truth, I was like, what does that even mean? I don't want to preach on something. I don't know what it means. And um, so I'm going to do it anyways. But... Um, I just saw, I, I, I saw several things in culture. I've, I've, I've seen several movements in how people are behaving. And, and if, 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 for the past two, three years, the word, the word outrage um, seems to be the, the national hobby. It used to be that America's favorite pastime was baseball. Um, now America's favorite pastime is outrage. Everyone's, everyone's responding to something. There's these reactions that are built in to, to when we're and confronted with something. People just respond to it in, in outrage. So um, I want to examine some of those ideas this morning. Um, read you a story, um, an article that I came across some time ago um, uh, through NPR. Um, I'm going to read it to you. But the author of the article says, We live in times of instant mass outrage. Someone does something, says something, or is seen doing something, and they can be demonized with a click. The next time you might be tempted, think of this. In the fourth inning of Sunday's game between the Chicago Cubs and the St. Louis Cardinals, the Cubs' first base coach tossed a foul ball to a smiling youngster in the stands who wore a Cubs hat endearingly too large for him. The kid bobbled the baseball, and when people saw next to the video clips that zapped around the world was a man who sat behind the boy, scoop up the ball, and give it to a woman next to him. Tweets and other social media posts began began to barrage the man who stole a foul ball from a little boy. There could be no doubt. Um, There was was video evidence. You've you've heard that phrase, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, there's video now, right? So there's video evidence. We all saw it. This guy stole this little boy's baseball. Well, the the Cubs front office quickly dispatched a staffer from the seats and gave the youngster a new ball signed by Javi Baez, the Cubs shortstop. The little boy smiled under the brim of his boat-sized hat and held up two baseballs. What the Cubs discovered from people nearby was that the man in question wound up with four balls during the game and gave three to children, including the young man who had appeared to be swindled. He also gave one to his wife. It was their anniversary, after all. Julian Green of the Cubs said in the statement, Unfortunately, a video that was quickly posted and unverified has made a national villain out of an innocent man. The author of the article says, I almost retweeted that 12-second video myself. No doubt with some caustic comment. I think I would have if the man had been a Yankees fan. (laughs) He continues and says, I wonder how many people who passed along that video to condemn a man with a click will now pass along the true story of his kindness. And then the author of the article finishes with this statement. He says, How many of us today would rather be outraged 
than informed. How many of us today would rather be outraged than informed? It seems like everywhere we turn, someone's protesting something. There's this collective feeling in culture. This righteous indignation is is the flavor of the day every day. You ever wonder why though? what's, What's got people so bent out of shape? Well, perhaps part of the reason is deep down in the recess of our heart, we we value rightness. We value righteousness and and we want it. We, We pursue this idea of righteousness. Tim Keller provides a helpful Um, some helpful insight on this in his book, The Reason for God, he says, it is common to hear people say, no one should impose their moral values on others because everyone has the right to find truth inside him or herself. This belief leaves the speaker open to a series of uncomfortable questions. Aren't there people in the world who are doing things you believe are wrong? Things that they should stop doing no matter what they personally believe about the correctness of their behavior? If you do, and everyone does, doesn't that mean that you do believe there is some kind of moral standard that people should abide by regardless of their individual convictions? This raises a question. Why is it impossible in practice for anyone to be a consistent moral relativist even when they claim that they are? The answer is that we all have a pervasive powerful and unavoidable belief, not only in moral values, but also in moral obligations. The word we're looking at this morning is a word that we need to get a firm grip on. As we walk through 2019, we're, we're going to drive past a number of billboards that, that, that say things like, um, am I a good person? Um, what is the difference between right and wrong? What is really right and, and what is really wrong? And, and billboards like, how do I please God? How, how do I get right with God? What do I need to do to be right with God, or to use the language of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 26, what must I do to be saved? What earns me the status of being a good person? How do I become righteous? So the word we're looking at this morning is righteousness, and that's a word that describes the quality of our behavior and actions towards God and towards other people. So, so the stuff that you do, you, you do righteous things, uh, um, you do just thing, I, I, this act was righteous, uh, this act was good, uh, there's ethical and moral implications to that uh, facet of the, of, of the meaning of that word, but... The word righteousness also describes a person's moral standing and virtue. So you do righteous things, but you're also righteous. This act was an act of righteousness, but, but I am also a righteous individual. These are the two concepts that, that we're going to walk through in this morning's sermon. The text I want to look at is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. We'll spend... Really, most of the time, if not all of the time, on verse 17. But let me read God's word, and then we will pray. The Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we need your spirit to speak to us this morning. We need his work to convict our hearts, to illumine our minds, to understand your word, O Lord, and to change our hearts. So Lord, we ask that you would do this work of leading us to truth and helping us respond to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So three, three categories of, of thought from this text. You've got them in your outline there. Righteousness revealed. Righteousness needed. Righteousness lived out. If you, um, if you want a musical uh, version of this sermon, just take the song lyrics that we sang earlier. 
Um, I was back there just praising God for, for his timing and how he plans things. Eric and I didn't meet to talk about the worship service. But uh, if you want to know what the sermon... You've already heard the sermon, in other words. We, we sang the sermon earlier. Um, so thank you, Eric, for that sensitivity to the Spirit. But righteousness revealed. So verse 17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Question. What is the righteousness of God? We need some help from some really smart people. Mr. Wayne Grudem, author of a, a kind of the standard systematic theology that most pastors look at to, to get some help in studying Scripture, says God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself that final standard of what is right. John Frame in his work says, The main idea of divine righteousness is that God acts according to a perfect internal standard of right and wrong. All his actions are within the limits, if we can use that term reverently, of that standard. So righteous is the form, I love this phrase, the structure of God's goodness. And his goodness is the concrete, active embodiment of his righteousness. To say that God is good implies that God is righteous. So goodness includes righteousness rather than being separate from it. And scripture often presents God's righteousness not merely as an authoritative standard. I add, it is that. But as an active power bringing salvation. The Apostle Paul introduces us to this idea that there is such a thing out there called the righteousness of God. There is this standard that, that comes from God, that, 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 that God's nature uh, um, extends righteousness. Scripture is permeated with descriptions that speak about God and his righteous and just acts. In Genesis 18.25, Abraham says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Moses writes in Deuteronomy 32, All God's ways are justice. Just and right is he. David writes in Psalm 19, the precepts, the laws of the Lord are right. Isaiah 45, prophet Isaiah says, the Lord speaks the truth. I'm sorry, this is the Lord speaking. He says, I the Lord speak the the truth. I declare what is right. This text introduces us to the idea that the eternal God of the universe is a righteous God. He is perfectly good and perfectly just. Nothing God has done or will ever do is even in the slightest sense morally deficient or incomplete. Nothing God has ever done is morally questionable. There's no ethical questions that pop up when God has moved throughout history. All his ways are righteous because God himself is the standard of righteousness. This is who he is. This is his character. But that's not the only thing Paul says in verse 17. God's righteousness is revealed. But the verse says, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, in what? Verse 16 tells us that in the gospel... Verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So Paul is saying that God's righteousness can be seen in the gospel. That the gospel unfolds details about what God's righteousness looks like and is. So, question, what is the gospel? The gospel basically is the message of God's plan to save mankind through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And through that plan, through that message, God's righteousness is revealed to his creation. The quality of God's actions and the nature of God's character are seen through this message of salvation in Christ. Before the gospel communicates anything else... About the nature of humankind, about our, 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 our qualities, our, our, our characteristics, about who we are. Before the gospel communicates anything else, it reveals the righteousness of God. It communicates something about God. 
In the gospel, God is found to be righteous and to have acted righteously. Now stay with me because this is important. In other words, the gospel is about God. God's message of salvation through Jesus Christ. That message in scripture is primarily about God. It describes Him. It comes from Him. It's about Him. It reveals who He is and it reveals His purposes. The gospel reveals an aspect of God to us. So what does that mean? Well, that means that God's message of salvation is His own. What we find in the gospel is God's message to save humankind based on His standards and based on Him. He owns it. He's determined it. It cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. It cannot be modified by us. And, And what does the gospel imply the gospel implies that the recipients of God's righteousness need the gospel we need to be saved God is making a statement primarily about himself but there's another statement that's made about us why do we need to be saved Well, because we are unlike God. We're not like Him. God is perfectly righteous. And we are not. Paul is going to expand on some of this in the book of Romans. Romans 3.10, he says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one does good. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then Paul goes on to describe who the unrighteous are. He says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is a painful statement that comes up, but it is a glorious statement when it's completed. Verse 11, Paul looks at humankind and says, And such were some of you. Primarily, the gospel is about God revealing his righteousness, but something else is revealed through the gospel, our unrighteousness. Now, this is a necessary reminder for us all. This is probably why the Lord placed this word in my heart, because we are surrounded by a culture With movies and books, Instagram stories, Netflix originals, talk shows, Super Bowl halftime commercials. A culture that's surrounded with the idea that it is okay. It it, it toys with, yeah, God's righteousness, that's not a big deal. I can take that one with a little bit of sugar. But the other idea that we are unrighteous, oh, no, 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 no. Culture may be okay with the idea that God is a righteous God. It questions his righteousness, but it is not okay with the biblical statement that we are unrighteous before this righteous judge. Culture does not like that. And so a question would be, why? Why? What is inside the heart of kind of 21st century Western civilization, 21st century America... Well, Mark Sayers in his helpful book gives us some insight. He says, to get to the heart of our post-Christian context, we must understand how we got here, how the ground shifted. Sometime in the night, a revolution occurred and we did not notice it. So distracted by the phony war between left and right, conservative and liberals, we have failed to notice that a new power had seized both control of our imaginations and the halls of power. This new power swirls around a small yet widely held set of beliefs. Number one, the highest good, translation, righteousness, is individual freedom, 
happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Underline how many times the word self shows up in this quote. Number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be shaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. I skip number three. There were seven of these. These are the four that I thought were helpful. Number four, the primary social ethic. Translation, the current way to achieve righteousness is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. So what is operating under the heart of, of people that, that we love and that are our friends and our family members, that we see on TV, that, that we give them our vote, that may or may not be believers. But what is operating in their hearts? The self-determination for what is right and wrong. This all translates to, I determine what is right. I determine how to be right. I am my own source of righteousness. Righteousness comes from me. And, don't you dare tell me otherwise. You see that in culture. Much of the noise you hear out there comes from this idea that, that you and me, I, get to define what's good for me. We, we are the authors of our own goodness. And the moment you say otherwise, you're crossing a boundary. You're out of bounds. And the thing is, we can, we can look towards culture and point our finger at them. But this is why I'm preaching on this word today. That mindset creeps up in here. One of the most helpful ideas that Pastor Keith communicated with us last year was that, that we live in a land that, that infects us, that, that influences us. We're swimming in, a, in an ocean of culture that, that we don't, fish don't, don't know that they're getting wet, but they're getting wet. They're inside water. We're inside this culture. And it's influencing us. It's, it's guiding us to think certain things. It's, it's constantly pushing us in certain directions. And this idea of self-defining righteousness, this idea of, of, of standing up and proclaiming, I am the source of my own self-good, I am the source of my own righteousness, it makes its way into our local setting as a church. Let me show you two ways... It happens. First one is, have you ever been offended by a sermon? Have you ever been offended by a sermon or a teaching? Listen, our our preaching isn't perfect. Exhibit A, you've heard me preach, it's not perfect. We get that, I get that. But have you ever been offended by God's truth being presented to you? Has that ever happened in your heart? Have you recoiled at, 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 a, at a change of, of, of an exhortation? When one of the pastors comes up here and says, Thus saith the Lord, life should happen in this setting, not in this setting. How have you received that? Have you been disturbed or, or offended, or, or have you been made upset? Or have you been convicted? These are not the same things. Conviction is a work of the Spirit brought about by humility. The Word is preached. Sin is revealed through the light of God's truth. And we respond in humility. Holy Spirit convicts us and we align ourselves with God's will for our life. We join David in Psalm 51 and we say, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. That's conviction. But have you ever experienced being offended? Being being so angry that you've waited for the sermon to be over, you have got to tell Keith that no good... (laughs) 
Have you ever felt that way? Don't you dare tell me what I can or cannot do. Don't you dare point out or single out an area of my life that that should not be singled out. Why? Because I've determined that is good. So the idea of conviction versus offense. Now, listen, we will say stupid things from the pulpit. I will guarantee you I will say stupid things from the pulpit. But when you hear the word taught, do you feel humble conviction or do you feel this urge to to confront? That's a way that this idea of righteousness, of of worldly righteousness, of of the self-righteous idea that I am the author of my own goodness creeps its way into the church. Here's another way. There's many more I thought about too. He's into the way. Have, have you ever been... Say this carefully. Um, have you ever been upset with a particular successful ministry in a local church setting? Some time ago in another church I was a part of, um, the Lord did this incredible work uh, in the youth ministry of, of this church. Um, Lord sent us a new youth pastor... And the guy was, was just zealous and, and hard worker. And um, he was there for about four years. And from the time he got there, there was probably eight to ten people in the youth meetings. And that included him and the leaders. And, and by the time he left, they were in the 70s, 80s. Um, so the, the, the Lord just poured favor on that ministry. Kids were getting saved left and right, but parents, you know, relationships with youth and parents were getting better. Uh, um, this guy had access to the local high schools, was able to go teach. Just incredible work of God in giving us favor. That's a good thing, right? It's a great thing. But not everyone was happy. Not everyone was happy. Because... A lot of resources, a lot of energy, a a, a lot of capital was spent on that ministry and not on others. Now, I'm I'm trying to dodge landmines as I say this. Um, There is a difference between zeal and greed. There's a difference between being zealous for the work of God and recognizing that there are areas of deficiency. We have them. But that is not the same as wanting what others have. These are two different things. One of them sees a desire to bring about the work of God. The other sees other ministries as competition. The other sees the desire to be self-validated. This is how this stuff creeps up in our local setting. The moment we begin to see the work of God in our midst as competition, as unnecessary, or worse, as illegitimate, because we are not involved, that's pride operating inside a person's heart. That's the work of unrighteousness. It leads to feelings of self-entitlement, and it leads quite literally to the opposition of the work of God. I spent a good deal of time opening up on the idea of what the righteousness of God was. And here is why. Because the cross of Christ levels us. The cross of Christ levels us. When you understand that you and I are recipients of the merit, the favor, the grace, the forgiveness of God... When we lived lives in direct opposition to Him. In the storyline of Scripture, God constantly leans into a rebellious people. When you understand that we do not deserve what God has given us. When you understand the wickedness in our hearts. When you understand your place next to God. 
When you get to the point in your life where you can say, like the Apostle Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. At the end of his ministry, Paul says, I am the chief of... Wait, what? When you get to the point that you realize, like like, like John the Baptist, who, by the way, is described in Scripture as the greatest man born of a woman ever, when he sees the cross, when he sees Christ, he says, I'm unworthy to tie that man's sandals. When you recognize God's greatness, His beauty, His perfect righteousness, and you respond like the prophet Isaiah responded, Woe is me, I am undone. When you are uncomfortably made aware of your nothingness before God's infinite majesty. When you're leveled and you realize that God's love was poured on you only, only because he is a good God. Only because he's a merciful God. That his work towards us came even in spite of us. When those thoughts grip you, there is no room for pride. There is no room for, for self-righteousness, for, for projecting our idea of, of this is good, this should be better. You're just happy to get crumbs off the table. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for welcoming me into your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me, for showing me patience. For not zapping me when I deserve to be zapped. King James Version, God smiteth thee. Thank you, Lord, for not having smitten, smote, smoten. I don't know. Unrighteousness leads to this idea of entitlement. The text goes on, gives us a couple more ideas. Righteousness needed. So verse 17 says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What does that mean? Well, I can tell you there's a lot of discussion about what that means. Um, But more than likely, it probably means it's referring to right standing, that right standing with God, that righteousness with God, That to be accepted by God is by faith from start to finish. And we're back at trying to understand the gospel again. We're back to trying to understand the gospel. The great American theologian of the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, once said that the only thing we bring to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. In the gospel, our relationship with God begins with repentance. God declares us unrighteous. And we agree with him. We say, you're right. We realize that we are separated from God as a result of living our lives against his standards. But, but God provided a way. God provided a way to, to do away with this separation. Paul gives us some thoughts in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake... God, he made Christ, him, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 3, Paul says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Underline this part. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That comes from doing things. That comes from my activity. That comes from obedience. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. The gospel declares us righteous by faith. God's righteousness invades our life by faith. From faith. That's that first part of that phrase. Now, faith is not a work. Faith is not something that you do. Faith is our heart's response to God's initiative. God speaks into our lives and through His voice, we respond. He gives us ears to hear and and that is faith. And faith is a proclamation. But Faith gets us righteousness. 
Faith opens up the door to, 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 to have this thing called the righteousness of God. And that's important. Because we need that righteousness. We need that righteousness. And we're about to see it's impossible for us to achieve it on our own. But that doesn't stop us from trying. Matthew 5 verse 20. Jesus says one of the most difficult things to hear. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. I've reflected on that verse. What does that mean? Now, we we have a view on who the religious leaders, the Pharisees, on Jesus' time were. Um, we, we typically like project evil motives to them. Um, but they were experts at keeping the law. They were experts at doing the right thing. Their hearts were totally bankrupt. But they, they, oper- they checked the lists. Right? Do this, do this, do this. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Check, 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 check. So Jesus comes on the, on the, on the scene and says, You see what they do? You see their behavior and their obedience? You see how they try and pursue the law to please God? Your righteousness has to be greater than that. That's that's tough to hear. Through faith, we have access to God. But there's, there's, there's something here. This is not a concept that is... Um, Found only in religion. This is another reason why we're looking at this word today. While we live in an increasingly secular time, the culture that we live in is actually not post-religious. I would argue that, that there's this undercurrent of a phrase I made up, secular sacramentalism. In other words, just like back in Jesus' time, you had to perform all these righteous deeds, you, you, have to, you have to follow all these laws to be a good person? That sounds a lot like what you hear in today's setting. Secular sacramentalism. There are rights to be righteous according to the world. And the culture's preaching this to you every day. You have to be good. You have to be good. You have to do this. You have to do that. Doing this will make you good. Doing that will make you righteous. You, you'll be a good person. If you do that, if you do that, you won't be. But if you do this, you will. Some of those things have changed as the years have gone by. The, the, the good stuff is no longer good 20, 30 years ago. But the idea is the same. 21st century, at the apex of human technological and intellectual achievement, the rules haven't changed. This same internal struggle, struggle continues. This urge to to be good by what you do continues. It's a secular version of what Jesus had to confront back in his day. Religious legalism. The idea that the uh, the, the more you follow religious rules, the more righteous you become. That the gooder you get. And the gooder you get, the closer you are to earn salvation. In that time, salvation had to do with God. But in our time, salvation has to do with something else. With with. Another God that we're going to look at in a little bit. You see this reflected in the Gospel of Luke, by the way, in chapter 18. Jesus speaking to, this, to these religious leaders. Says to them, Luke 18 verse 9 says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And listen to this. And treated others with contempt. You can lift up that verse 2,000 years ago and drop it on culture today. And we see that. There are people out there who trust in what they do to make themselves righteous and they treat others with contempt. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christians are, 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 are uh, immune from this. But the parable continues. He says, verse 10, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a religious uh, ruler, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give hilarious tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, being made right, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Secular legalism is the same thing. It looks a lot like the religious system built on the idea that salvation is achieved by works. But in our case, in our time, it's secular works. It's a a bizarre 21st century version of idolatry. Where back in Moses' day, you know, it was a golden calf. That was your idol. It was these things that you fashioned with your hands. People, People brought those things satisfaction. They behaved according to what those things would do. Our idols are no longer golden calves or wooden idols but, but our culture worships a certain level of gods there are gods that our, our culture worships the, the, the god of, of self-righteousness the, the god of self-expression the, the, the god of personal freedom and to earn favor with these gods you have to continue to offer them sacrifices you have to continue being good according to their definition of good. Just like the old religious system that Jesus fought against, the list of works you have to do only grows. I find it fascinating that the religious system in Jesus' day, it, it, it was like, it was like, it's like rabbits procreating. Just laws, just, just all these laws. You have to keep this and this and this and you have to keep it this way, this way, this way. And, and, and if they're impossible to keep. We're going to add more. Our, our, our culture, our time is really no different. There's an ever increasing and changing list of moral laws that you have to keep to be righteous. And the sad thing about this is, is that they're impossible to, to keep. But... but you, You're forced to never stop trying anyways. You're forced to continue in this perpetual cycle of establishing your own righteousness. But you can't because you can't keep up. So I'm going to show you an example. And then I'm going to tell you why any of this is relevant. I know very little about tennis. Actually, the only thing I know about tennis is Serena Williams. Like, I know she's like the best and she's awesome. That's all I know about tennis. Um, but sports typically offer an outlet for um, cultural progression. Like sports typically, it, it, a microcosm of, of revolutions in terms of uh, moral changes and just kind of where the culture is going. A lot of that takes place in sports. Um, and this fascinating story of a tennis player by the name of Martina Navratilova. Let me read to you a write-up. She found herself in, in a pickle. She found herself making the righteous crowd angry at her because she wasn't righteous enough. So read the description of what happened. She won the Wimbledon's women's single title a phenomenal nine times. Martina Navratilova's name, however, appears in the headlines not for her athleticism, but for her collision with the LGBTQ revolution. Why is this interesting? Because Navratilova identifies as a gay athlete who championed the cause of gay rights. Now, the LGBTQ LGBTQ mainstream has disavowed Navratilova for her comments that criticized the participation of transgender women in gender-specific sports. That is to say, allowing men who identify as women to compete against actual women in athletic contests. This controversy began in December of last year when Navratilova tweeted... You can't just proclaim yourself a female and be, uh, and be able to compete against women. She advocated for standards that would eventually disqualify trans women for competing against women in athletic events. So, do you see what's happening? 
This, this, this lady who no longer plays tennis was, was heralded as a pioneer in, in, in gay rights and in, in promoting the cause of gay rights through sports. She now finds herself under the car of a movement that is driving on the road that she helped pave. Navratilova faced immediate backlash from the LGBTQ community. Transgender activists lambasted her and warned her that she was about to be on the wrong side of history. Once a leader and international symbol of the gay rights revolution, Navratilova had been left behind. Her views were no longer in step with the sweeping moral upheaval propagated by the sexual revolutionaries. After the backlash, Navratilova deleted her tweet and promised to study the issue in depth. Now, he's not what I'm doing. I'm not taking pot shots at the sexual revolution, right? I mean, that's, we've got passages in 1 Corinthians coming up. They're going to deal with that. But I'm, I'm presenting that as exhibit A. Look at what culture's demanding of itself. Look at what culture is claiming of its participants. You have to continue to do stuff to be a good person. You, you, you might have done certain things a certain time, but that's not good enough anymore. you got to do more. You haven't done enough. It doesn't matter that at some time ago you were the pioneer of this moral revolution, but you've got to be with us. Not, not only is your lack of participation against us, but it undoes what you did. It's never enough. Culture is teaching us that this idea that we need to constantly validate our righteousness. We have to continue performing. But what does this have to do with us as a local church setting? The answer is a lot. This matters a lot. Again, we're, we're, culture is the ocean we swim in. We're around these ideas. We, we, we work with people that think this way. We interact with people that think this way. We, we have family members that have these, 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 these ideas. We're in this. And so I'm sticking the word righteousness in our midst so we can look at that and temper some of these other influences that are showing up. We are not immune to the influence of what's happening around us. We're not. In many cases, we'll actually find ourselves, according to the culture standards, we will be on the, right, on the wrong side of history. And why is that important? J.K. Chesterton has a wonderful thought. He said, these are the days where the Christian is expected to praise every creed but theirs. Church, there's an ex- external pressure that you will face. Where I cannot believe that March is like... Right around the corner. Like 2019 is just rolling along. And you have to be aware that you are going to face external pressures. Pressures to prove your righteousness by abandoning the righteousness of God in, the, in favor of the righteousness the culture props up. You will be tempted to let go of biblical ideas of righteousness. In favor of other pursuits. In favor of other man-made ideas of righteousness. This is an external pressure. You're going to want to satisfy the voices of culture around you. But there's an internal pressure as well. You, You know what this looks like in the church setting? So, the pressure we'll face from, from, from the culture is you guys are homophobes, you're racist, you're bigots, get, get on with the program. If you want to be a good person, stop believing in that old dusty book. That, that's the culture's pressure that you'll get, but there's pressure within the church as well. What does that pressure look like? What does this need to continually um, um, produce self-righteousness through performance look like in the culture? What does, that, what does that look like when we gather together as believers? Well, it looks like at least a couple things. It looks like infighting and bickering. Infighting and bickering about, about social issues. I can't believe you voted for that person. I can't believe you have that view. 
or, or, or bickering about, you, you're not loud enough about, about this social issue. If you were a good Christian, you'd be screaming to high heaven about this social issue. There's a difference between righteous zeal and condemning self-righteousness. This is what you'll encounter in the church. They're not the same thing. Our God is in fact a God of justice. We, above all people, should pursue the matters of justice in our culture. We should be voices that speak into important matters. Social settings, things like racism, abortion, all these ills that that we look at and we say, we find in scripture a standard for righteousness. And we're going to stand up and speak against these issues. As people of justice, as people whose God's righteousness has been revealed, we, we now in turn should pursue those things. But, but we shouldn't fight about pursuing those things. We shouldn't elevate those things to, to uh, the pedestal that they shouldn't be on. I heard this wonderful quote that really sums up thoughts in this. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people live. There are many of you who are involved in a number of things related to social justice issues. We're so grateful for your voice. Please continue the hard work. Please tell us how we can pray for you. But the gospel of Christ is not just about social justice. There's something greater than that. It's about God's justice. So don't measure other people's righteousness with your own. Don't, 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 don't say, because you don't love, love this idea, because you're not pursuing this particular issue, then, then you're unrighteous. You're not as righteous as I am. I'm going to go tell you that you should be screaming about this issue, but you're not. Second uh, uh, way it shows up in churches, uh, comparison and contrasts. It's kind of related to that first one. Back to that Luke 18 passage. You know, you've got this Pharisee, he says, I do this, I do this, I do this. this. This tax collector, he doesn't do any of that. This type of, of, of self-validation, of, of the pursuit of, of self-righteousness, the condemnation of other people's status before God, is, what, is, is how it will show up in church. You're going to want to compare your righteousness to others, other people's, in other words. You're going to want to stack up. And in Christ, again, the cross levels us. We're on even ground. No one's taller than anyone else at the foot of the cross. So what do we do with this? Last point, this will be quick. Eric, you can come up, my friend. Back in the 90s, there was a movement. I think it was the 90s. Bracelets, what would Jesus do? Um, If that were to come out today, it would be, what would Jesus be outraged about? So how how do we apply some of these ideas How do we leave church today, go to work tomorrow, and just live through this idea of of God's righteousness is revealed through Christ by his work on the cross. I am made righteous. I don't need external forms of validation. I, I don't need to question another person's righteousness. Righteousness is a status that God has gracefully and mercifully given me by his by the work of Christ on the cross on my behalf so what do we do it's a quote by a lady by the name of Hannah Anderson new book she's written called All That's Good I highly recommend that you read this book but she says when we encounter injustice we might have a deep intuitive sense that this is not the way things are supposed to be The idea is behind the next virtue, or this idea is behind the next virtue that Paul mentions in Philippians 4. Whatever is just. Something is just when it fulfills what it's supposed to do. When it is the way it's supposed to be. Throughout scripture, the concept of justice is closely tied to righteousness, or more literally, the rightness of something. 
with God's nature as the standard of what is right. In fact, when God calls us righteousness, calls us to righteousness, he appeals to his own. Be holy because I am holy. This makes sense when you remember that human beings were created to reflect the glory of God. In order for the things to be the way that they're supposed to be, we must conduct ourselves in a way that is consistent with his nature. We must act like he acts and do what he does. So, for, so for example, don't take your cues from culture. Social media is a cesspool of ignorance. For the life of me, I can't understand why we're so interested in it. I can't. I'm not going to tell you to get away from social media. I am going to (laughs) say, Peter will do that next week. (laughs) Don't take your cues of what is right and wrong from social media. Culture is a moving target when it comes to these issues of righteousness. There's a new form of it every day. You're not going to keep up. And you shouldn't. Because you have a standard to follow. Um, Another application point. um, Do you have convictions? As, as as, As you're listening to this sermon... Trying to stay awake. Do you, do you have convictions? Where are you drawing your ideas of righteousness from? What, what has informed you of things that should be pursued and fought for versus things that should be ignored and left out? Other application point is humility. We, we, we cannot be self-righteous And receive God's forgiveness. We can't. Those two things are at odds. Um, (laughs) Listen to a a talk by one of my favorite preachers this week. And he talked about. um, You know some sermons have conclusions. uh, And sometimes he preaches sermons. And he just ends. Um, This is the latter. Um just ending um, but on, on the way here uh, there's a song I want, us, Eric, I want Eric to lead us in um, a song that we sang earlier um, that presents the theme of God's righteousness and so let's, let's stand together and let's go to the Lord in prayer and Eric will lead us Father, we we are a people who want to do what's right. Many times we're confused about what that is. Many times we don't know. Lord, we are a people who want to know, want to feel that we are good. You have impressed your image on us. So our hearts are drawn to ideas of righteousness and goodness. Lord, would you in your kindness pacify our hearts. There might be some of us in the sumo, Lord, who who might feel that you are against them or that you don't love them because they're not good enough. Because they sinned this week again. Because this lifestyle of unrighteousness that they followed showed up again. And they stand accused by themselves their self-imposed list of religious sacrifices 
fell short. And now, Lord, they look to you and they run. Father, in your kindness, would you reveal your righteousness through Christ? Would you help us see the beauty of the Son of God becoming unrighteousness to make us righteous before you? Father, would you help my brothers and sisters here love and know the truth that in Christ you are for us. That in Christ we are accepted. That in Christ we don't have to perform. We don't have to do because you have done. You have done it all. Lord, there might be some in this room who are not under your grace. Would your spirit bring about humble conviction? Would you reveal the righteousness of the work of your son through the cross? Would we see new life this morning?